So I would invite you now to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We had a few weeks off amidst Easter, um, and we now return back to the book of Hebrews as we are very close to finishing up our study through this book. And so we are finishing up chapter 12 today, and then uh, two more weeks we'll finish up chapter 13 and we'll, we'll conclude our study here in this book. But I'd invite you to stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. This is what God's Word says. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God, we gather here today because of what you have done for us. You have called a people to yourself, not by anything that we have earned or merited in your, in your eyes, but because of what you have done in sending Jesus to pay the ultimate price for our sins, to unite us to him and to yourself. And so I just pray that we would be a people who live in recognition of the great mercy and grace that we have been shown that that would leave us constantly in awe of how much you have loved us. So I pray this morning that you would guide us into your word. I pray that these, sh- these, these few short verses, as we conclude this book, would just uh, ring the themes of this book over and over again in a new way in our hearts this morning. Let us remember what you have done and what you've called us to be. And that you have not left us alone, but you've sent your spirit to dwell in us, to empower us, and to aliven us to these things. So I just pray that uh, this morning we would be a people who long to worship you in every aspect of our lives. That we would would marvel at your holiness, your otherness, and yet at the same time recognize that you have come close to us. And you invite us to draw near to you. So we come to you this morning and ask for you to do a work in our hearts, in our midst, I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish its purposes in us. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me just ask you, who in here has, uh, has, has been through an, an earthquake? Anybody? Wow, there's a lot of you. A lot of you. All, all those Californians, I guess, that have moved out here, maybe? I don't know. So... Actually, I know that we have some here in Colorado occasionally. There was one back in 2011 or something down in Trinidad or whatnot that kind of, uh, you know, was, was significant um, occasionally. But living in Colorado, I've, I've never felt a, an earthquake at all. My wife, though, however, has, has felt many throughout her life. She grew up, uh, if you don't know, down in uh, Ecuador in South America. She's much cooler than I am, as you all know that. And uh, she got to experience a lot, of, a lot of interesting things. But because of all the volcanic activity there, there's just, there's, 
there, there's a lot of earthquakes and just there's things happening there. And so, uh, so she, she, she grew up feeling little ones here and there, but, but also a number of times, a handful of times, she's felt some significant uh, quakes connected with kind of even the, the erupting of the volcanoes that are there in the area. At times, her, when she was in college, her parents' house actually had all the windows broken out of it at one point because of the earthquakes there. And actually, there's, what's interesting is there, there's actually earthquakes all over the place, frequently. There's somewhere around 500,000 detectable earthquakes that occur throughout the world every year. Only about 100,000 of those can you feel in any way, and then probably only about 100 of them cause any kind of significant damage. And it's really only a few, every few years that it seems like there's one that shows up that really shakes and, and, and really creates mass destruction. But what's incredible after an earthquake, when you go into some of these areas where there's a significant earthquake that's created significant damage, is to see how, inevitably, there's always some buildings that are completely destroyed and collapsed, and yet there's others that will survive and remain standing. And I have, a, I have just a couple pictures to kind of illustrate this for us. I have, I have one here, first of all, if we can get that up. Yeah, this is, I think it was down in Mexico, where this one building just completely fell apart and collapsed, and the other ones just down the street are still there. I have another one that I love, just this image of that I found here, where everything is just in complete shambles, and yet this tower somehow survived and stayed standing. And I wanted to show those images just, just to kind of help, help, help give us a, a vivid image that, that captures in just a small way what this passage before us is, is, is telling us, that there is a shaking that is coming that is going to reveal everything that will crumble and will also reveal what will stand forever. And this passage forms the conclusion of the text that Aaron preached for us just a few weeks back. And in the previous section, verses 18 through 24, the writer there contrasted for us two mountains. Remember Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And really the purpose of this entire, this entire passage is to further support the exhortation that was given at the beginning of chapter 12, which is really kind of the, the ultimate call of the entire book of Hebrews, where he said, hey, hey, let us set aside everything that is keeping us from following fully after Jesus, and let us, let us run with patience this race that is set before us. And we do that as, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We consider Him, who He is, what He has done, and as we, as we do that, that will keep us from stumbling, from falling, and it will, it will allow us to persevere and endure until the end. It's really the theme of this whole book. And He's just been saying to us again, hold fast to Jesus because you have come not to Mount Sinai and the law of the Old Covenant but rather remember that the blood of Jesus has enacted a new covenant relationship with God. And by that, you have been called to Mount Zion, this heavenly, eternal city that's characterized by, by angelic, festive parties and the gathering of all those saints who have endured and gone before us. And there's this vision given to us of the kingdom that we have been invited to through Jesus. And so here at the end of chapter 12, we're given one final warning to consider. And I want to just look at four points that we should observe throughout this text. First, there is a serious plea set before us, which then leads us to this urgent response. And yet, we, we are given a confident outlook 
and called to a worshipful heart. So I want to start by first looking here in verse 25 with with this serious plea. He says this, he says, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. This verb see is is really the central uh, imperative command of the passage. He's saying give special attention to this. Pay attention, be intentional. See that this does not happen in your life. So see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Well, who's he referring to that is speaking? As this is in many ways almost the close and the, the, the one bookend of, of Hebrews, do you remember how the book of Hebrews first opened up? Where he said, God formerly spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. He's saying, God from Mount Zion has spoken to us through Christ. And His blood has declared a better word to us. And the writer is pleading one final time for the reader to not refuse to listen to God and the gospel declared through Jesus. This is a serious plea that he's setting forth. Much like we've seen over and over throughout this book with these multiple warning passages that really construct the backbone of Hebrews. Remember, like he said in chapter 2, Pay close attention to what we have heard so that we don't slip away. So here we are. We've we've almost made it through this book. And we've heard these things over and over again. Many of you are probably thinking, can we just get through this book? There's these repeated themes just over and over. We get it. Remember? He said to us what? Jesus is better. He is the one who has offered the only perfect sacrifice for sins. He is the mediator of the better covenant. He is the true and great high priest. He is our perfect representative. He alone fulfills all of the Old Testament images. And in Him alone is found atonement for sins, forgiveness, and salvation. And there's one lingering question that remains. Have you been listening? There's a serious plea here. Don't take lightly the regular preaching and proclamation of the Word of God through the Gospel. Don't fail to listen to it, receive it, and respond to it. It's a dangerous place for us to to hear the Word of God calling out the offer of salvation in the Gospel and to refuse to listen. To say, yeah, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll give attention to that. Maybe someday I'll, I'll submit my life to that. But here he is calling out saying, make sure that everything that I've said, everything that I've set forth to you about the image of who Jesus is, that you do not fail to listen to him who is speaking. And you may be sitting there now and in the voice of the joker from the dark night, you might be thinking, Why so serious? Why so serious? And he tells us, he says this, For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. So they who did not escape when they refused Him who warned on earth, who is he talking about? He's talking about the original generation of Israel who God brought out of Egypt, who he, he, he encountered at Mount Sinai, who He entered into this covenant relationship with them. And what happened to them? 
as they left there, because of their rebellion and their disbelief, every single one of them died in the desert and failed to enter into the promised land, a theme already unpacked formerly in the book of Hebrews. And he's saying if, if they did not escape when they refused Him on the mountain, much less will we escape if we reject the voice coming from Mount Zion to us. Saying there is no other way, the ultimate and only final way to know and enter into the presence of God has been offered to you. So make sure that you do not fail to respond, to hear it, to listen and receive it. And maybe you might say, I get it. I'm a Christian. I have. I've heard. I've responded to that. I've responded in faith to the gospel, but does this passage not continue to call out to us? Do we continue to listen to the voice of God more than the voices of everything else around us? Do we listen to the voice of the Word of God more than the voices of our culture and society? What are the voices that we are listening to that actually are shaping our lives? Do we listen to Scripture and how God has revealed to us the path to joy, the path to know Him? Or do we tend to listen to the voices of society that call out to us regularly, that that try to cast for us a vision of the good life and say, if you actually ultimately want to find salvation and, 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 and joy and satisfaction in life, then this is what you need. Sure, I'm glad you got your kind of eternal security out of the way, but now... If you want to have a happy life here, if you want to be satisfied, then this is what you need. And every day we are surrounded by voices through our culture and society calling us to something that's promising some kind of joy and satisfaction. And will we choose to listen to the voice of God and His Word over all of those other voices? Because those voices that we hear daily, they are insidious, they are corrosive, and they constantly tug at our heart and pull us and draw us away from what God has called us to. Just like in the garden, the voice of the serpent that called out to Eve saying, has God really said? Is that really true? Does God really have what is best for you? Maybe you should actually take and eat and and, and follow what you think is good and right for yourself. Do we as God's people continue to listen to the voice of God around above all other voices that call out to us? There is a serious plea here. But secondly, this leads us to this urgency of response. There's an urgent response that we're called to. He says this in verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth. Here is a reference to God's presence at Sinai, right? In Exodus 19 and 20, when, when Israel came to the mountain, and what, what did they see? Just this, this mountain engulfed in cloud and smoke, thunder and lightning, this terrifying scene of uh, picturing God's presence there. And then he goes on and he says, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So what's he talking about there? What we have here is the writer of Hebrews quoting from and drawing on a prophecy given by Haggai. You all know Haggai, right? You're all fully familiar with Haggai. No, I doubt it. So let me, let me draw us to, to understand this a little bit and connect what's going on here. 
It's the Bible's telling one big story, and all of these little pieces fit together. You see, Haggai was a prophet in Israel. We have a very small book tucked away at the end of our Old Testament that bears his name. It's just two chapters long. And Haggai lived during the time of the exile. This was the time where, where in around 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire came in and conquered what was remaining of the nation of Israel. And they, they, they ushered them out of Israel and relocated them into the nation of Babylon. And years later, the Persians came in after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, and they took over. And it was under the rule of King Darius that he allowed many of the Israelites to return back to their homeland. And it's, it's at this time that Haggai comes on the scene, a prophet sent by God to speak to the people. And they're resettling back into the nation of Israel and into Jerusalem. And Haggai comes along and he speaks against the people and he criticizes them for this. That they were rebuilding their own homes. They were resettling their own lives back in Israel. And yet, Haggai points out that the temple of God, the one that had previously been built by Solomon, it had been destroyed under the, by the Babylonians. And it was still lying in ruins. And Haggai says, how can you be building your own houses and yet God's house is still in shambles, is still a pile of rubble? And he invites and he calls them to, to rebuild the temple of God. And the people do respond and they begin to take up this work to reconstruct the temple. And as they, as they get the structure up and they're, they're building this thing, they realize that this is a pretty pathetic temple when compared with the previous one. It says that those who, who had previously were still alive, who had seen Solomon's temple, just wept because this one was a lousy excuse for a temple. And it's in this setting that the words of Haggai come that I want to point us to where we see this quotation. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, he says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, meaning continue working to build this temple. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. You get what he's saying? He's saying, despite Israel's failure to uphold their covenant faithfulness, and despite the judgment that has fallen upon them and their exile that they have experienced, God's covenant faithfulness still stands. His promises will be fulfilled in them. And His Spirit remains with them. So He says, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Then he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. So what is Haggai saying? Is he really just speaking about eventually this temple that they're working on is going to be decorated and beautiful and actually be better than, you know, Solomon's temple? 
I don't think so. Even after, even after Herod came in and kind of did a whole renovation years later and all, um, I don't think we, we see the, the greatness of merely just this temple here. I know I, I don't believe that Haggai's words, as we understand them in light of the whole of Scripture, is speaking merely of a physical structure that's going to have better architecture and more beautiful interior design. I believe that Haggai is speaking to the ultimate fulfillment of the true place of God's dwelling, of which the temple was always designed to be but a mere shadow. And we see this when Jesus comes along. And in John 2, it says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it in three days? But Jesus wasn't concerned about the physical temple. It says that He was speaking about the temple of His body. See, just before even He went to the cross, what did Jesus do at the temple? We see that He comes along in Mark and He curses a fig tree and then He goes in and He cleanses the temple. And that cursing of the fig tree is a declaration in the story of how He has ultimately proclaimed a curse on the temple because it failed to be what it was supposed to be, a presence and a place in which the nations could be gathered to know God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls out to us and he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but what are we? We're fellow citizens, we're saints and members of the household of God. And in Him, the whole structure is being joined together and it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And in in Him, we're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And then in 1 Peter, it says, you yourselves are are living stones. And you're being built up as a spiritual house, a royal priesthood. You see, Jesus comes along and He is the true temple of God. God's presence, God in fullness, dwelling in human flesh. And as we are united to Christ in the Gospel, we become the true temple where God dwells through His Spirit. It is not the temple in Jerusalem that will last forever, but it is the temple that God always intended to create through Christ and through His people that is eternal and will last. And Haggai speaks of this pattern of a shaking that God is going to do that is going to draw the treasures of the nations into His temple. I think he's referring ultimately to that ultimate gathering of of all peoples into God's church through the advance and spread of the gospel as the church continues to carry forth God's mission to fill the world with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And here the writer of Hebrews gives commentary on Haggai's prophecy and says ultimately where this is heading. Where he says this, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. This this mere physical world is going to be undone. And he says this is done in order that the things that cannot be shaken might remain. 
So he's saying that Haggai's words point to an ultimate day, a day in which the world as we know it will reach its climactic end, and God is going to remove all that is temporary and establish that which is eternal. He will enact a final, ultimate judgment and bring forth the recreation of all things. And as he points to this final, ultimate reality, he's saying that because of this, there is an urgency for us to respond to this. This world is going to be shaken down to its very foundations, so make certain that you belong to the structure that will survive. It's His kingdom, it's His city, and His temple that will last into eternity. And if that is true, it also calls out to say, why on earth would we bother building our kingdom here? A call for us to to really consider what we are investing our lives in. What is our greatest desire to see built, to see established with our lives? The uh, missionary C.T. Studd left us with this great one-liner where he said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Everything will ultimately be tested and tried. And what we see in our physical world through the, the natural disasters that occur amidst all the tragedy and everything that comes from those, one thing that we, that we do see and learn is, is, is how quickly something that we hold so dearly, something that is spent so long investing in and building can be wiped out in an instant. I reflect back even just this last fall when those fires got kicked up down outside of Boulder and how tragically in such a quick moment, homes, neighborhoods, communities were ravaged and destroyed. And the writer of Hebrews is, is calling us, saying that same reality is going to happen in this world. And we have to recognize that, that if we invest our lives and pour our lives into the wrong things, it can be gone in an instant, we will be left with nothing What is our life built upon? What is our life connected to? What are we investing our lives in? There's an urgency to respond to this reality. And yet, in light of this, what can seem like a gloomy end, we are given a confident outlook. Because what does he say? He says that this shaking is for the purpose that that which cannot be shaken, that which is immovable, might remain. And so he calls us and he says, therefore, in light of that, Let us be a people who are grateful. Let us be thankful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've been called into a kingdom that won't collapse. It is eternal and unshakable. First Peter describes our inheritance as imperishable, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. And that should leave us as people with a a confident outlook, regardless of what we're seeing. So when you look out on the world, what, what is it that you see these days? It's probably not a good landscape, right? And thanks to our media, we have the worst of the world set before us regularly. You can look out at our nation with its just ever-increasing political battles, what seems like a rapid moral decline of our society. We see just the, the ethical confusion that abounds everywhere out there. Then you look globally, 
in a time that for many of us we think of as, as marked by overall world peace in some sense. Yeah, sure, maybe in, in some of the underdeveloped world they're still fighting, but in the modern world we, we have peace. And yet, just look to Eastern Europe and we see modern warfare once again on full display. We've had years of viruses that have wreaked havoc on health and economies, struggling under, under inflation that is skyrocketing. Maybe you're like me where I, I put $85 of gasoline into my truck this past week and just left feeling frustrated. What about in your own life? Trying to maintain relationships and friendships, trying to hold your marriage together, trying to, to find a career path that's going to sustain you, struggling with whether you can continue to, 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 to support a family living in this place, in this economy? Does it sometimes just feel as though everything in life and in our world is so fragile that it could easily just come toppling down in an instant? Aren't you grateful that we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken? That none of those things can touch it? Amidst everything that we see out there that's discouraging, that's, that, that, that's frustrating, yet amidst it all, there is something unshakable that will remain. God's kingdom is there. His temple is being built. It is stable, it is steady, and it is advancing. And no matter how bad things get, we have a house that cannot fall. Sometimes do you feel like your, your, your life itself is being shaken? That, that you don't know if things are going to actually hold together, if God's going to get you through it? Well, the reality is that, that, that maybe God is wanting to strip away all the unnecessary earthly parts of you and leave only that which is eternal. I'm not a big fan of reality TV for the most part. One show that for some reason captivated me, I have no idea why, was the show Gold Rush that was on Discovery Channel for a while. Like, I don't know why, like I've never driven excavators or big equipment or anything. I've never lived in Alaska. Maybe it just seems like a cool adventure that it kind of brought you into. These guys go up into the Yukon and they just dig up mountains and mountains and mountains of dirt. And what they do is they run it through these wash plants. It's just yards and yards of dirt. And it goes through this big machine and water is poured over the top of it. But at the same time, that thing just shakes violently, constantly. What it's doing is just shaking off all of the dirt, all the rocks, and washing all of that stuff away so that ultimately these little tiny flakes of gold that have been there for, for hundreds and hundreds of years are, are, are filtered out and caught and preserved and found. And they go through all this work and all this effort and all this labor to get just this small amount, what seems like a small amount of gold that is ultimately incredibly valuable. And sometimes God is, is doing that even in our own lives where He's, he's, he's shaking us. And, and we, we, we looked just a few weeks ago at this previous passage that spoke of God's discipline in our lives. Not as a punitive judgment on us, but a way that He's trying to train us and shape us to, 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 to recognize what He wants us to be. Even now, sometimes God is shaking our very lives loose, trying to awaken us to the reality of the unshakable nature of His kingdom as that is the only thing that will last, that will hold. And are we willing to let Him shake off all the dirt and all the other stuff that is worthless, that will not last, and let Him create 
an unshakable and eternal kingdom. So in light of this, what is your outlook? Are you discouraged or are you confident? This book has been declaring to us over and over again that we can be absolutely confident that when all is said and done, we will come out on the other side. It may not be in our physical state as we know it now, much like the hall of faith that we read about, who those who went on before us, that apart from them, we would not be made perfect. But when everything ultimately is finally revealed, everything else will fall and fail, but it's God's kingdom and His temple that will stand up. And that is certainly something that we can be grateful for. And this reality has to shape us now. It has to shape us as a people in our constant, steady joy, our faithfulness, and our presence in this world. The last call of this book, or this chapter rather, is just in verses 28 and 29, where we're called to a worshipful heart. As he closes, in light of all of these themes that we've unpacked, in light of all of these things that that we've seen, you may just be wondering, okay, what am I to do? Well, the answer is here. He says, therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He tells us first what we are to offer. It's acceptable worship. There's so much that could be said about worship and what it is. If, if we try to just, just define it, one def- definition that I, that I came across that I think gets at the heart of it is this, is that worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator God precisely because He is worthy and delightfully so. And if that is true, then one of the first things that we must say about worship is that it is not restrained to Sunday morning or merely our church gatherings, but rather all of life is worship. All of life should be the response that we have to recognizing the greatness of God and all that He has done for us. You see, corporate worship together here is the culmination of personal worship. And worship on Sunday should fuel our worship on Monday. What we come to today is not merely just a worship service where we're trying to just kind of conjure up worship, but this is a gathering of worshipers. A gathering of people who who recognize the greatness and glory of God and want to come together and declare that corporately to each other, with each other, to stir our affections all the more to see God as He truly is. The other thing that we have to say about this is that by saying acceptable worship, it naturally means that there's a type of worship that is unacceptable. Meaning we simply can't just worship God on our own terms and and in whichever way that we choose. But the question is, how do we know which we are doing? And again, there's far more that needs to be said, but I would at least point us to what Jesus said in John chapter 4, that those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
So, so acceptable worship starts with a, with a true work of the Holy Spirit that awakens our hearts to the reality of the gospel, to the reality of the greatness of God. That that Spirit draws within us a, a response to the glory and majesty of who God is, and that is connected with the truth that has been revealed to us about God's nature and His character. We have to first strive hard to know God as He has revealed Himself to us. That's why we go to the Scriptures to know Him, to see Him, to understand who He is, His ways, in all of His diverse attributes. And if our view and understanding of worship is built on, primarily on modern worship music and off of K-Love, then ultimately our worship is going to be truncated at best and misguided at worst. Thankful for all the songs and music that call us to, to these truths, but it must be born out of our understanding of who God is and His diverse attributes revealed through the Scriptures to us. So we need to offer acceptable worship. And he says how we're to worship. With reverence and awe. Reverence is this word that just speaks of, of having a, a high regard for something. That it's not something we take lightly. And I love this word awe. Meaning just this, this profound respect to be just struck by the sheer greatness of something. And I think this is something that we fail to find so often in our world, right? We've seen it all. We've seen so many things through, through entertainment and music and our, our travels that, that sometimes I think we've lost the ability to be impressed. That's why I think it's so important and, and helpful at times to, to get out into the creation that God has made to stand on mountains and to see lakes and to see the world that God has made and just, just recognize and, and be struck by the sheer amazing nature of the world that God has made. Over spring break, we took our kids out to Moab, Utah. We went to Canyonlands National Park for the first time. And you just stand there and you stare out over these landscapes. It just looks like a whole other world. And you just have a sense in a moment of just of awe and wonder, how did, it, how did it become like that? I've never seen anything like this. Have we lost our ability to, to, to stare in awe at who God is? His greatness, His glory, His absolute holiness. Have we domesticated God in our minds and made Him something else? Or do we regularly pursue Seeing God in all of His greatness. That's how we offer worship, in reverence and awe to God. And lastly, he tells us why we offer worship. And this might strike you as a surprising reason. He says this, for our God is a consuming fire. For many, maybe that's not the image of God that you like to think of. Maybe that doesn't sound very approachable. Um, not something that, 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 that you feel a, a very welcoming presence towards. A consuming fire. But the reality here is that this is not a description of, of a worship that's out of mere terror. And in a sense that we're trying to appease this wrathful God who's, who's merely going to crush us and we appease Him with our worship. 
But it's a worship out of God because of a a reverent fear and a recognition of who He is in His greatness. And like I said before, we have to understand the full range of the diverse attributes that God reveals Himself to us as. Yes, God does present Himself as a Father, as the one who comes alongside and, and, and helps us in our greatest need, who is a protector, who lifts us up on His wings. All of those things are true. But we can't merely just grab one aspect of God and try to cling on to that. Some of you maybe like to just think of God more like a teddy bear. Someone that offers a a soft shoulder to lean on. And God does do that. He comforts us in our affliction. He reaches down and, and, and protects and guides us. But He also does that as a God who is also a consuming fire. One, one who no one can stand against, who, who, who in His very presence we are undone, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is why I love the, how, how C.S. Lewis captured this. I know we've said this many times here and, and drawn this out, but, but how he described the character of Aslan in his books, saying that, that yes, he's not safe, but he's good. I think it captures so well just, just, just the tension that we feel around who God is, His greatness, His terror, His, His absolute holiness, that we cannot stand in front of Him, and yet it's in His very strength, in His very power and might that because of Christ as we are brought in and united to Him, it is His very strength and power that allows then us to be protected and shielded by the shaking of this world. So He is a consuming fire who invites us to draw near to Him, to worship Him in His fullness. So church, will we heed this text? As as in many ways, this, this passage kind of is a conclusion of much of the themes of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13 is very different and, 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 and gives some very practical implications for us. But here as it concludes what has been this ongoing pattern throughout this book of warning us to make sure that, 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 that we listen, that we don't fall away, that we don't drift into other things, but that we hold fast and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Will we heed this serious plea to make sure that we don't fail to listen to the voice that has been speaking to us as the gospel has gone forth. If you've been here and you've listened to this over and over again and you've heard the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, His life lived in your place, His death atoning and paying for your sins and His resurrected life, I'd invite you to receive that today. Don't put it off. Don't keep, keep, keep delaying and saying, yeah, maybe someday I'll give attention to that. But today, will you hear the serious plea of this passage and of this book? And will you respond with urgency? Because there is a shaking coming in which all that is shakable will become undone and it will crumble and only that which is eternal will last. And church, will we respond to this with confidence? Have a confident outlook no matter what we see because God's kingdom is is advancing and He still has a mission that He is doing through us. So will we be faithful in our proclamation of the gospel 
as we always say, where we live, where we work, and where we play. As God is still at work and He's still building His kingdom, He's still drawing the treasures of the nations into His temple. And will we respond to all of this with a worshipful heart? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because He is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we come before Your presence and we come with confidence because of what Jesus has done, because You opened the way for us to come to You in Your perfect holiness and Your greatness. On our own, we would be crushed, we would be destroyed, but in light of the transforming work of the gospel within us, we can confidently approach Your throne. We can worship You in fullness for who You are, what You have accomplished for us, and what You're going to do in this world. So I pray that You would hold us fast, that You would build Your kingdom, and allow us to go out into the world no matter what the week ahead holds, whether it's a valley or whether it's a mountaintop. Let us be a people who are grateful that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we ask this in the beautiful name of our Savior. Amen.